1: Or Whatever Movies
0: with Wesley and Iris. What up and welcome to Or Whatever Movies. I'm your co-host, Iris, and I'm here with my older brother.
1: Wesley, and we are discussing a movie from 2023, Cabin in the Woods.
0: Negative. Knock at the cabin.
1: Wait, this isn't the movie where the random strangers show up at the cabin with all kinds of weapons and stuff and then force the people inside to make a decision about which one they're going to sacrifice to save humanity?
0: Oh, oh. (laughs) well, I guess in that sense, affirmative.
1: Kelly Ray knew, she's like, you know it's going to be scary, right? Because it has Cabin in the title. Of course. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Well, also Shyamalan.
1: Yeah, well, yeah, sometimes he does scary movies, sometimes he does fairy tales, sometimes he does outright kids' movies.
0: But like Kubrick movies, they're all haunted. And like Hitchcock movies, he's always in them.
1: Yeah, he was uh, the guy in the infomercial or whatever, right?
0: Yeah, I think he was a news reporter. (laughs)
1: Yeah. I'm going to put on... My, 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 doomsday shoes.
0: Yeah, in that scene, Brian was like, of course they have to have him sing. The dude from Hamilton. And I was like, oh,
1: yeah. Who does he play in Hamilton?
0: You've seen Hamilton. I know,
1: but I was, number one, I was live and I was really far away and I have bad eyesight. He plays King George. King George? Okay. Okay. But there was an article that said that there was some backlash and some protests over this anti-gay depiction. And I was like,
0: what part was that? There was backlash about the car scene of them singing? Mm,
1: It was like a negative depiction or something, or it was uh, maybe the fact that they were targeted as a gay couple. I'm not sure. So I wondered what larger themes were they exploring, how it's relevant. Maybe it puts the two dads on sort of equal footing, so to speak, so that when the choice is made... Because I think it was pretty clear that it wasn't going to be the little girl. But if the sacrifices were going to happen, which I assumed it was going to be, given that it was a horror movie, it wasn't about gender. It was maybe more of an arbitrary choice or more of a personality choice.
0: I think that the purpose was that the victims believe that there is something personal going on or that it's not entirely arbitrary. The, the whole point was, oh, yeah, you're saying it's just whoever it was at the cabin. We, and it just happens to be this kind of vulnerable uh, subset of the community that's targeted, you know, for hate crimes and stuff like that. And I do think that there was relevancy to when being adopted because you might think that the filial bonds of adoption might not be as strong as the biological bonds of parenthood. And therefore, there was that remote possibility that the dads might turn over the daughter.
1: man. That larger theme is dependent on the movie's execution and kind of bringing you in. You have to set up a good story and you have to set up real drama and stakes before you can uh, incorporate the philosophical themes. And it's the burden of this movie to try to establish that before we can make these kind of distinctions within the, what, 90-minute-plus runtime? Mm-hmm. I'm going to say, however, that I think when should have been sacrificed. Really? Yep. Because that little girl was not a good actress. And a little Aww. a little bit like Ron, a little bit like Rupert Grint, when he died, the movie got better. And, and look, poor, poor Rupert Grant, who we love because he's a big cutie. He tried his damnedest, right? He was, like, the one who was the most emotional, the most angry, the most emotive, the most scared, trembling, and whimpering, and not just, like, sacrifice must be made or whatever, you know? But she was distractingly bad. He was distractingly Aww. bad. The the dialect coach was asleep at the switch for him. <laughs>
0: And like, didn't go whenever his British accent came out. Right.
1: But it is not this, that's the least of this movie's problems. Like, it's really hard to be scared at silly religious crackpots or whatever.
0: Even when they've got you tied up in a remote cabin with no cell reception?
1: Yeah, that. Until Ron dies, until Rupert Grant makes his emotional exit. And then they're like, well, they're still crazy, but they're committed. Like it needed to convince me that there was real peril or weight to their decision. And this wasn't just like crazy murder people.
0: The movie goes through phases. Initially, yes, I thought they were targeted. And then Rupert Grant dies. And then I'm like, OK, yeah, so they're just crazy. Exactly. And then all the plagues are begin to be unleashed. They were obviously telling the truth. And you can maybe justify their really bad delivery of the truth because they were emotionally distressed.
1: Not obviously.
0: They, they weren't obviously...
1: No, as the two dudes were saying, they're like, look, you know, the earthquake happens underwater and there's a huge tidal wave and they turn on the TV and there's already footage. Kelly Ray was like, how did they get that footage? Was it like live streaming or something? Like, because whoever took yeah, exactly. the footage was overwhelmed <laughs> by the water, right? Then they retrieved <laughs> yes. it, then they downloaded it and then they uploaded it, they uploaded it to CNN or no. whatever. And it was, but it was... Conven- it was live streamed. But like the guys were saying, too, they... He's like, I was reading headlines about this disease this outbreak weeks ago so there the disasters the timelines didn't line up it wasn't a direct result of them refusing to make a choice at least for well, the you... for the first two
0: come on you've what? seen the last of us pa- these epidemic pandemic things take some time so they had to plant the seeds before
1: so God was like all right we're gonna ramp this up and we'll see if we have to make yeah. a decision but we're going to have all the dominoes in place for when it happens yeah they're like queue up the disaster
0: has to happen organically.
1: And we'll see, <laughs> so that when it ramps down, it looks organic too, right? If we don't do it at the last minute, then it was like, oh, that was a like a plague a epidemic for a for a second, but it's all good now. And it was a uh, electromagnetic malfunctions worldwide in aircrafts. It's it's fine. Turn it off.
0: I agree that the timing was a little wonky for sure, but they could have also very easily manufactured that footage and you know had it queued up to play to that local TV somehow. I mean, they cut their phone lines. Yeah, right? they had a certain amount of tech savviness. And
1: that's exactly my point. If we were meant to doubt the the veracity of their claims that they had seen these uniform shared visions and that this undoubtedly was coming, that none of them wanted to be there, that they were there to save Watsernutz's son or Drax's second grade class. Then to give the captives logical arguments to to convince themselves otherwise, all of which I latched onto, I think weakened the movie a little bit because by the time I was on board, it was irrefutable. The decision must be made. No decision. Humanity must have sacrifice or whatever. Bam, he's dead and planes start falling out of the sky. Then I was like, oh, it's a thing because that's not not something that they could have planned.
0: That's the thing. I get that a lot of people were ostensibly sacrificed, you know, in the first three plagues. Like they could have just said, like, okay, in 30 minutes, um, (laughs) you start seeing planes fall out of the sky. So if you don't believe us now, then let's just have let's just hang out until then.
1: Well, I thought that it was a psychological hustle that they were playing on people who one of them who was hurt and the other who was traumatized. From being assaulted in the bar, who had issues and and were on the defensive because they felt they were being targeted for their family and their sexuality and stuff, and that would have made a you know I think a much more compelling narrative that would have propelled a book through to this sort of half-assed lame conclusion. Like, okay, we're left to decide whether it's real. And I was like, this is stupid. I don't care what you say. Even if I believed it, I'm not going to choose the world over my family. No way. I'm not going to make that decision. I was firmly in that camp. So then it was real. And I was like, well, I have to believe now. It's like if the rapture happens, well, you're not going to believe if Jesus comes down and takes you away or whatever. But yeah, if Jesus came down, I I would fall on my knees and repent. But until that happens, I was being like, (laughs) <laughs> Come on, you guys are crazy, which they maintained as for as long as they could.
0: Is that are you answering the inevitable question of what would you have done?
1: Mm, well, no, I definitely would have done exactly what those two dudes did. And until I saw a vision or whatever. And then I don't know. I mean, it sucks to have to make that decision. But then, no, I would I would have killed Wen just to take the, uh, the trouble out of it.
0: The trouble out of it.
1: She's expensive, and she's terrible at escaping. But she's got
0: that naughty laugh, and she loves unicorns and colorful pens and stuff. Drama. Listen, there's no way that I would have sacrificed one of the girls. No, of course
1: not. So you choose the one who's already hurt and the one who is convinced that that he has found a a peace and harmony with the decision.
0: Yeah, that's what they did. Exactly. And maybe there's a part of me that's still doubts this. So I was holding on whether Andrew was holding on to any doubt, I was holding on to doubt for Andrew because he was so firmly in his belief that this was wrong. Like I don't even I don't even know that at the point he kills Eric if he, you know, still truly believed. Anyway, I was holding on to that doubt when Eric when they went to the cafe and when they're sitting in the car and they're playing with the radio and I'm like, "Okay, and here's when the M Night Shyamalan twists happens." And the twist was that there was no twist.
1: Yeah, because for the, all the youngsters out there who don't know, this dude made his mark with Twisty movies. Maybe the twist was that it was real. That he wasn't sure up until the time. All we had was what's his nut saying. There was something in the light. I found peace. Go ahead and kill me. And they made the easiest choice that they could have made in an impossible situation. And then it is true. Once they leave the cabin, planes are falling still. And and the you know lightning is striking and stuff. And the world is still going to hell. But they can do something about it. And they do something about it. And they escape. And the world suddenly gets better. But that's all after the fact. Because they had to make this decision in blind faith. And their decision was justified when the whole time we thought it wasn't.
0: What was justified?
1: When Andrew kills Eric, we don't know that it's real 100% until then. Because like Andrew, I was still completely resistant. Like, oh, you like you were like there's a there's a twist and it was all manufactured and it's going to be like the mist and it's going to be all horrible and tragic for no reason. Spoiler. And uh, so maybe that's the twist. Maybe having it be legitimate.
0: Well, then we then I think the filmmakers could have gone through greater pains to to make us believe that it wasn't real. Like, I think that I pretty early on, I was like, yeah, maybe they have some credence there. Like when they start murder, like committing suicide one by one. I guess I'm contradicting myself because I'm saying that I held on to my doubt and Andrew's doubt for him. But also I was like, okay, yeah, well, the way that this is going suggests that they're telling the truth.
1: And that's my concern. Did this movie position it in such a way where you're like, this is all for naught and thus it's not scary and doesn't have stakes? Because I think that's the position you must assume if you're like, these people are crackpots.
0: But doesn't that make them scary and volatile and unpredictable?
1: I suppose. But then it makes it a run of the mill. Let's tie you to a chair, monologue a whole bunch and then kill each other. uh, You know, when one of you inevitably escapes and gets hold of the gun in the truck or takes my axe with a chain connected to it or whatever weapon and kills me in retribution for imprisoning your family. It was just going to be one of those.
0: Right. Unless they kind of throw in there for who knows what reason. And by the way, we can't hurt
1: you at all and we we can't hurt you at all we're going to be unfailingly polite when he's going for the gun to kill what's her nuts she's like I don't want to hurt you and she's like poking him in the side and stuff once Ron dies and you know that they're crazy even if they're not crazy to you you don't really know because if it ultimately comes to pass that you're not going to make the decision that they want maybe they'll change their thinking because at some point they were coming at him with weapons like weren't someone was going to hurt him she was going to hurt him I think when when uh, he'll ultimately shot her in the stomach.
0: My problem with knock in the cabin is how they are portraying God. Does God have such a twisted sense of humor that he would tell the four horsemen exactly what kind of scary looking weapons to create and that he would he or it or she would pre plan plagues and famines and all of the horrible things that were going to happen and then send like the most intimidating person of all time, Dave Bautista, to to (laughs) basically send what is possibly the most important message in human history.
1: To a random cabin in the woods. Exactly. Um, I know. But so you're the foremost theologian in this discussion and an expert on the Bible and I wondered if the apocalypse, which I'm sure just like the uh, creationist legends or whatever, they they're uh, universal for almost every religion has a creation myth. Right. And likewise, I'm assuming an end of the world narrative. Right. Like an apocalypse narrative. Yeah. You said the horsemen, which they've made no secret about, but no one ever said they were the horsemen, number one. No one ever said, did anybody say God? Did anybody say biblical plague? Or were were these just inferences that we drew?
0: When you're talking about resident theologians, Eric definitely had some context. If anybody brought it up, he did. Because at the end, Eric makes the four horsemen connection, and and before that, he talks about, Somewhat early on, someone is talking about how, you know, throughout history, this is how things happen. People make sacrifices.
1: Well, we've seen sacrifices in movies before. Almost always. They're totally crazy, and it's not at all justified, right? Right. From Conan the Destroyer to Apocalypto. And when they're trying to make sacrifices in pre-America civilizations in Apocalypto, you're like, this is ridiculous. You have to run, dude. Like, get out of there because they're going to cut your head off and kick it down the stairs. But this one, I feel like, is no different. Just because it has themes that are more in line with Christianity or whatever, which is what most people in America believe, it, it was the four horsemen of the apocalypse according to Revelations. Because I wrote down really early on before, right after I wrote down, dude, what is going on in this movie? I wrote down that Drax wore a white shirt to the bloodbath. That seems like he's just asking to be identified once he has to go on the run after he kills these people. Right. But he, they all wore clothing in line with the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And they were all representations. And Ron was all like anger and he was war. And his- well,
0: that's the other thing. Like, not only does God send the most intimidating man in In history to send the most important message in history. But then he also sends the dude who beat up the gay dudes in the bar.
1: Well, was it him? And what, what was the reason for the backstory? It seemed like the reason for the backstory is that Eric and Andrew had their traumas, which led to their sort of prejudices against these wacko revelations, right? This idea of this is why I don't believe them, because that's the dude from the bar. And now he's targeting us again.
0: Well, it was the dude from the bar, because how else would Andrew have known his name?
1: Uh, that It's true. So it was the dude from the bar, but he was like, yeah, but it was a long time ago. He gained some weight and his beard is different. And I was like, so Ron was like 12 and even skinnier than he is now? Like, you got beat up by a wizard, dude. And it didn't make sense because he still looks like he's, you know, 18 years old to me.
0: He was trying really hard to rough it up. Yeah, he was all scruffy bearded and he looked a little beefier, but just because he's not eight, not like 12 anymore.
1: It seemed like they they were perfectly positioned to refute these absurdist claims in a way that I completely bought. Like at no point did I align with the crazy people and be like, dude, you have to make a decision. They're about to kill themselves, too. And now here it goes. Another plague is upon is on your head, you know? At no point did I think that until the movie forced me to think that
0: which was about when
1: which was after he made the decision to kill Eric or they made the decision together
0: pretty late for
1: when's behalf pretty exactly process. and that's why I was that's why I feel like it was the twist and why I was confused about what this movie was trying to accomplish because the, if that's the case then you're right it isn't an, uh, an unfavorable depiction of God in Christianity who sent weird messengers to an arbitrary, you know, the people. Maybe this was to target the non-believers or whatever. If the burden of saving humanity was on my head, was contingent upon a testing of my faith, everybody's going to die. I'm sorry, guys. The most unlikely people, a gay couple who's going to be like, I'm all in on God. That seems unlikely. And it seems like if God wanted the, uh, the best outcome, and didn't want, you know, hundreds of thousands of people to die three right. times over, he, he might have sent someone a little bit more receptive. He might have put, exactly right put the burden exactly. on someone more receptive.
0: And, you know, Dave Bautista's character, you know, the Leonard character being a, what was he, a second grade teacher yep. and like a coach? Yep. Like, a, of all people should know that, Adults have no business whatsoever speaking to children outside of school kind of at all, ever, for any reason. Like, when he's talking to her in the woods, of course it's intended to be scary and build all this tension and all that kind of stuff. But it's like, he ha- I was just thinking to myself, like, this person obviously can't be up to any good because adults have no reason to talk to children, period. Yeah. Adults need to talk, find out something, they talk to other adults. So Leonard, who supposedly understands children, makes it all so much more difficult for them. Like if they had simp- simply gone to the cabin door like Jehovah's Witnesses and been like, hey, may I please please have a moment of your time? Like they absolutely would have opened the door. And then Dave Bautista being the imposing figure he is could have simply put his boot, you know, in the door jam and been like, no, actually, we need to come
1: in. Like <laughs> right? no concussion this- <laughs> where I thought he was dead. Didn't he fall down and his eyes were open? And weren't you convinced he was dead? Yeah. And I was yeah. like, well, that's one down.
0: Well, he was definitely knocked out.
1: <laughs> yeah, with his eyes wide open.
0: And so this is basically my problem. In addition to the off-screen depiction of God, my problem is that all of the story mechanics were intended to create tension and suspense, but really were kind of un- unnecessary and unrealistic. Like this could have been, it probably could have been still thrilling and suspenseful and scary and tense if they had simply gone to the cabin and knocked
1: the critical reviews for this were about 60%, I think uh, high 60s. And I think the audience had a similar reaction. And I think it's because there wasn't the murder that we wanted. There were a few deaths. It was all by the hands of, of, no, it wasn't all suicides because what's his nuts killed what's her nuts by shooting her. But I think it was a horror movie that tried to sneak in philosophical stuff. This is not a scary movie that is actually a religious movie that's trying to trick you. Hmm. This is – because if this promotes the belief of anyone – it's of cultists and crackpots who were like, see what happens if we espouse <laughs> crazy theories and you don't listen? The apocalypse actually happens. That's what this movie is trying to convince you of, that the whole time they were right and their doomsday predictions and their visions did did come to pass.
0: I mean, this seems in line with Shyamalan for me. Isn't that what happened with Signs? Like it was a perfectly good suspense film until the aliens showed up and there was all this meaning and purpose behind the water and the swing away and all that jazz. I loved Signs, but then after The Village and stuff like that, I just kind of fell off because I felt like he was a director suffering from early success. But now I just think he's a director who is not super precious about his
1: films. Well, from what I've seen, and this is the problem with seeing this movie, I saw it and I was like, that was the movie I watched. And then I started doing research. And by all accounts, M. Night Shyamalan is a great, wonderful, collaborative filmmaker who's, uh, well, maybe not collaborative, but he's certainly kind. He's like the Guillermo del Toro of horror movies, even though Guillermo del Toro is kind of the Guillermo del Toro of horror movies and such, but I think those are kind of on par. Are they scary? Yeah, but are they also kind of about family and kind of lighter themes? Yeah. It's not blood and gore necessarily. This is, in fact, his only his second Raid of R movie after The Happening, which is kind of the beginning of the end for him, and the Death Nail was The Last Airbender, but he is very meticulous. Like, almost Coen Brothers level, where Every comma matters. He he took on this movie. It was sent to him. He was only going to produce it. And the more he got involved, he got all jazzed and was like, no, I have to do it. I have to write it. I have to direct it. And so he kind of went all in on this movie. So I think he's very committed and ...fiercely opinionated about his movies and really possesses them. I think the problem is he's a little bit gun-shy. He's not going to you know, give you the conventional Shyamalan twist because we're so thoroughly expecting it. He's not going to give us what we expect because we saw The Last Airbender, which was a big-budget studio picture... That was more typical. That was, I think, what you would give to directors who have less of a creative like stranglehold on their art. They're like, yeah, I'm getting paid. I'm going to direct this great movie. It's going to be fun. I think he's not that, and I think he's trying to avoid that. This is his era where he's trying to subvert the expectations that come with his own name. So you're
0: saying that the problem with The Last Airbender was that he was a director for Hire?
1: That's, it. That's what ended up happening, unfortunately, yeah.
0: What does Knock at the Cabin mean for his, his career?
1: I think that he is no longer concerned with what people expect of him. He finds movies that he really likes, that he gets excited about, and he makes it exactly the way he wants to make it. Which he can do because of his credit, because of his cachet, and the fact that he can still get a movie made. It's just not going to be massive budget. Like, it's going to be one effect shot that's masked by the kind of hazy, grainy video quality of a tidal wave taking over Cannon Beach, and a couple of planes flying out of the sky, and some matte paintings of fire in the background, or whatever. I think what Shyamalan was good at was the drama and the suspense. When they're sitting around locked in a house talking about aliens out in the cornfields, you're kind of scared. And he's got some humor and stuff in there, too. When they're sitting around in the cabin talking about the people outside that are hundreds of thousands worldwide apocalypses that are going to die if we don't make a decision, it's kind of tense. They're really just kind of talkies. Maybe the happening was less so, but it was still an invisible monster or whatever. Um, Spoiler. But the I think that he has a flair for the drama. I just don't think the payoff is maybe it's not what we expect of him, but it's not enough to be satisfactory anymore. He kind of played his hand, as you said early on, and I think he's a fine capable filmmaker but is he the MTV Movie Awards runaway success that he was initially I'm not sure that you can sustain that level
0: no and maybe he's doing what he needs to be doing which is just making films the way that he wants to make them Yep, and if he has the ability to continue doing that then more power to him and what's your final reading?
1: I feel like this movie was razor thin in parts. Like, why don't you run? Even when they were when they had the gun and the upper hand, now is the time you leave. You're already committed. You shot the lady. Why don't you shoot Drax and run away? Definitely. It couldn't happen because ultimately we had to get to the place where they believed that the that the plagues were real because they were real. So I was confused and then frustrated, and then Kind of annoyed that they shoved me into this avenue of, nope, you got to get on board because the apocalypses are real. We were right and you were wrong the whole time. Um, so now, what do you think of that? And what I thought about it was like... Oh. All right, fine. And I watched it and I did some digging and doing some digging. I can see what they want the underlying themes to be. I can see the dilemma of why they gave these two dudes and their family and when the flashbacks and the backstory and why that would make it a more impossible decision. Why they were less inclined to just believe what the four crazy people had to say. And so there I think there's a lot of subtext that I didn't care about because I thought this was a cabin slasher movie. And just like Lady in the Water, which I think was wildly misguided misunderstood, if you go back and view that movie for what it is, it actually makes sense. It's it's a bedtime story and it's advertised as such. It's not the horror movie that people expected. This is, I expected to be a horror movie and it's not what I got for M. Night Shyamalan. So as much as I had problems with this movie, maybe I was not paying attention or missing some of the things that were happening sub- subtextually because it didn't go in the conventional direction. I think there may be more purpose to it uh, that I didn't see. That doesn't necessarily mean that i have to see it in order for it to be an effective movie i don't think so i didn't hate this movie i maybe it can squeak by but i was frustrated enough that i didn't know where it was coming from but i think that was the point i think the point was that you were meant to be off your footing and not going into this understanding exactly what was going to happen the whole way through so that when ultimately exactly the thing happened that you thought was going to happen it's kind of a twist that's a weird way of saying that it was It was probably an all right movie.
0: I have trouble with arguments that say you have to watch it for what it is. I mean, to suggest that audiences have to come in preloaded, I think is pretty unfair. Not unfair, like just impractical. But I think if I really try and analyze Knock at the Cabin neutrally, I would say it doesn't clear the line. And Brian would definitely disagree. We had to stop this movie halfway through to go and pick up the girls. And I was like, hey, you know, when we got home and we got them to bed, we were all, we were pretty tired. And I was like, let's just finish it tomorrow. And he was like, no, I can't get it out of my head. It had gripped him. He had to know how it would be resolved.
1: But that was before the turn where you actually had to believe. Up until then, it was completely ambiguous. I could see how if you got a call from the babysitter in the middle of this movie, you would leave and never go back to it and be kind of okay with that decision. I'm just saying that with the way the movie ultimately ended up, It required more than I thought the rest of the movie in order to make to sell that ending, I guess, because we needed the disbelief. It couldn't just be like the apocalypse is coming lightning, you know, and and planes crashing outside. Make your decision. No, I don't want to. I can't choose my daddy or whatever, you know. So it was more ambiguous and it was more (laughs) bright sunshine. And like, so in in a way, like you had to suffer through it. But I think going through, I think watching it again would be a different experience. I'm just giving it the benefit of the doubt.
0: I'm just saying that. Probably with a little bit of coercion and maybe some crazy talk, you could be convinced well, to put Well, that's with, all, with
1: all cults, for sure. So you're going with an official <laughs> boring rating? I will say that th- this is the Terminator 2 ending where, you know, they kill uh, the Terminator or they, he kills himself, kind of. They help him and you're like all sad and she's like the future lays before me like an uncertain road or whatever and no fate but what we make. And for the first time, I feel hope. And you're like, that's great. Except, you know, you're all going to prison for a long time because of, of, you know, the police explosions and stuff at the, and blowing up Cyberdyne. And so, how, once they get away with when in the truck and at the truck stop or whatever, then you, you know, how do you explain the murder at the cabin? You can't be like, oh, those apocalypses or whatever. They that was totally us. We saved you. No, people are dead. And you shot your partner in the cabin and then burned it down. I don't know why they needed to burn it down. But he has to account for that, and I think
0: God burned it down with the lightning.
1: Okay, to what? The evidence. It's it's a good thing because that Airbnb that rating was gonna go take a huge hit after that stay.
0: <laughs> uh, I wonder if Air, like with selling a house, like with Airbnb, if you have to report that someone died there.
1: No, that's actually the location of the salvation. You just don't know it because mm-hmm. you didn't pay close enough attention and gave it a boring.
0: That's the idea. You just, you know, you never know. This is a movie about you never know who you're dealing with. You right. might have ju- you might have just been in the diner with the savior of the world. <laughs> and that's our discussion on Knock at the Cabin, available exclusively on Peacock. Should I do a shout out to all the cultists and let them know we want to hear from them? Sure. Eight one eight eight three five zero four seven three or whatever movies at gmail.com. If you like horror movies, then check out our two seasons of Halloween at or whatever movies. Dozens of scary movie discussions included in our 200 plus reviews available at orwhatevermovies.com. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Hi, I'm Lessa Cadet, host of Her Extraordinary Life by Design podcast, where we celebrate women who are shaping their lives one extraordinary day at a time. I speak with women from all over the world about what they do and how they are passionately pursuing their dreams and creating meaningful impacts on their communities. So come join us and learn about all there is to learn about these extraordinary women. Hey, it's Tim from 50 Years of Music with 50-Year-Old White Guys, the comedy podcast you had no idea you needed. Join Ben, Jeff, and me as we continue our musical road trip back through the years and around the globe. See, just when you thought all white guys were like Joe Rogan, you come across three educators trying to remember when we were cool. 50 years of music with 50 year old white guys. Electricast. Acid. Electricast. Acid.